Uh, hello, good evening, YouTube, and uh, welcome to Superpower Broadcasting. Uh, tonight, uh, it's it's debate night, except instead of having more of a blood sports sort of debate, I'm joined by uh, Liberty Lockdown to more kind of discuss our different worldviews, because I'm basically a neocon, and and he's a, basically, you would call yourself an anarcho-capitalist, is that right, Liberty? Yeah, either way, man. Uh, by the way, it's Clint, so you can call me Clint if you prefer, um, but yeah, libertarian or anarcho-capitalist, either way is fine. Okay. Yeah, well, there you go. So obviously, we have a lot of differences and whatnot. But, you know, hopefully tonight, we can kind of, you know, discuss some of our different world views, uh, maybe find some common ground where possible. And uh, kind of just talk, you know, in, in a way that uh, unlike the recent debates that I've done, which have been, you know, pretty confrontational, though, I will say, the last anarcho capitalist I debated, Keith, uh, he was really cordial and polite and professional and everything. So, so far from your side, uh, you guys have had some really good uh, debaters. The Kyle guy that debated me the other night was not an anarcho-capitalist. He was more of a griper. So, you know. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, honestly, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to maintain my cool as well as uh, Keith did, but I'm going to do my damnedest. So, okay. Forgive yeah, me no, if, I, like, if yeah. I lose my temper at all. It's uh, I, I really am passionate about these ideas, as you are. So we'll we'll see yeah. how it goes. <laughs> well, that's why it gets difficult because we're both really political. We both feel really strongly about our, our views, and we have a lot of uh, differences. But before we kind of get into it, if you could just kind of, I guess, tell the audience a bit about yourself, because like people know who I am and everything, and where they can uh, find you. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, my name is Clint, uh, Liberty Lockdown Podcast, at Liberty Lock Pod on Twitter, um, Liberty Lockdown on YouTube, everywhere else. So uh, anyways, I am a 38-year-old, quasi-retired uh, real estate investor and mortgage broker, um, longtime libertarian, recent convert to anarcho-capitalism, and uh, just very passionate about ending the lockdowns, uh, hence the name of my show. I began it in May. It's already um, doing really well. So obviously there's a huge amount of demand for people that are equally pissed off about the lockdowns. Um, so that's, that's what people know me for, and uh, I look forward to this. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. I mean, that's something that we could discuss is a bit about the lockdown situation, because for me, I've got criticisms in terms of how uh, the government's kind of, uh, you know, taken a more, I don't necessarily want to use the term authoritarian, but in the technical sense of it, a more authoritarian direction in it. As the pandemic's gone on, I'm kind of of the view that if you're going to do that, you need to do it at the start. Uh, but I'm not I'm not somebody who just, you know, straight up says that the government should basically what do what they've been doing in China or anything. Uh, but I do think that government restrictions on uh, social interaction, on business operation stuff is appropriate in a pandemic such as this. But what's your view around the lockdown and to what sort of extent do you think there should have been a government, uh, you know, intervention society to to prevent the spread of the virus? Well, I don't think you're going to be surprised by my answer, but as an anarcho-capitalist, I believe the government had essentially no role in this. Uh, obviously, I would prefer that the government not exist, so uh, we're probably not going to see eye to eye on this topic at all. But um, as for you know the actual severity of the the virus and and the reaction that unfolded after the fact, I think that even uh, you know a statist would would be able to evaluate this at this point and say this was an overreaction and that ultimately we have been led by a bunch of very dangerous people down a path of what I view as a very ascientifical process 
um, you know, utilizing lockdowns, which have never been used in the history of the world, you know, globally. Uh, this is a very, very unorthodox uh, methodology and one that I strongly oppose. Um, I am curious to ask, though, given given your kind of belief in the morality or the I mean, I think I think you use the term superiority of the American government. Uh, yeah. What? Why is it that? Uh, where Where do you draw the line when you start to question the American government? Oh, uh, well, I think that uh, that there's always a place for constructive criticism, but I, I think that it, it varies in terms of how much of a crisis you're in or how much of a war you're in. So, for example, I think that. Uh, Criticism of the government in, you know, peacetime or in, uh, you know, not as severe wars, say World War II, is less of an issue than criticism of the government if you're in, say, a total war or something. Like if it's the Third World War, World War II or whatever. I think so in that sense, I think that there's a difference between, you know, crisis mode versus standard peacetime in that sense. But can, can, I, can I interrupt you just briefly? Yeah. Um, you said during peacetime, I don't view us have having peacetime in my life. So are you, are you saying basically only when we have large scale declared wars, these skirmishes and, and whatnot that we've been in for my entire life, you, you would, you would say that we are able to critique them during those, correct? Or no? Uh, critique them. Absolutely. Uh, do what Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning did. No. Uh, but to be critical of the war or outright just oppose the war effort, I, that's your free speech, right? Like my issue is if it compromises national security. Um, the extent of wars that have gone on, say, in the last 20 years, the, the largest one that the United States has been involved in was the war in Iraq. That was by no means a total war from the American side. When I say that, I'm talking more like, you know, great power versus great power conflict. So as far as like where does criticism of the government, the U.S. government become inappropriate, I would say under the most dire of circumstances, uh, sometimes you do need to have trust in the government to to guide things such as the third world war or say if this virus had been like a plague or something that it were say it had like a 30 percent kill rate or something or 50 percent kill rate. Well, given how minor it was, why, why are you not more? vocally opposed to the lockdowns i mean it does it does seem as if especially at this point we can all reflect on the the actual fatality rates and conclude that you know this is a, a dramatic totalitarian response uh well you may not describe it as totalitarian i would uh but do you do you do you still think that it was justified even after even after knowing right. everything we know now well, I think I, I think that we need to differentiate between different governments approach i think that the that the that the United States government's response to COVID in the beginning was far too little, in my view. And as time has gone on, it's be it's become somewhat onerous and it's too late to really do too much of a difference at this point. And so at some point when the virus is already so uh, penetrated into your country, there's only so much that you can do. However, you can still mitigate the spread of it. And I think that one reason why we look at it and say, well, the death rate of it is, you know, between 1% and 5%, depending on what you look at, it, it does miss the point that if we compare it to what it would have been without any government intervention, it definitely would have been higher. And so when we say, well, you know, it, it, it would be kind of the same as saying, like, you know, you, 
you um you built up a huge dam and everything uh for flooding and then the flooding happened and the flooding only caused a little bit of damage and then you say oh well i guess we shouldn't have wasted all that money on building this dam or or these dikes because the flood didn't do that much damage without realizing that if you didn't have those dikes it would have done a tremendous amount of damage that's kind of the the point there but i'm not i'm not 100% in favor of all the measures that have been taken and there's a lot of corruption on both sides and a lot of uh, disgrace on both sides with the lockdowns and well, I think with, it's an interesting I think it's an interesting analogy given that you know the, the type of the type of excuses made when we have you know budgetary overruns uh, same with the military industrial complex the wars that you largely support uh, oftentimes you know no matter how bad it is the the answer is always well you don't know how bad it would have been had we not and and it's like these are unprovable assertions or un, non disprovable assertions, I guess. So it's like, um, I, certainly with the virus, you could argue that that it may have saved some lives. Uh, I think that you could also argue, in fact, I could prove that there have been many lives lost by the lockdown protocols that you know drove people towards alcoholism and suicide and all sorts of other uh, you know knock on effects from them. So I don't know. It, it from from my vantage point. Uh, that, I think that's really what I wanted to get to the bottom of is like, okay, uh, what which aspect of the Bill of Rights, like, allows a lockdown in your view, and or do you guys do you guys not believe in the Bill of Rights? I, I really don't know. Well, you need to obviously be flexible enough to adjust to crisis situations. It's the sort of thing you know Machiavelli said that you know in a time of crisis, a uh, a dictatorship that's not able to think like a democrat will be overthrown. And a democracy that's not able to think like a dictator won't survive the crisis. And so you do need to be some uh, have some degree of flexibility when you're facing a once in a century type pandemic. Uh, now, you did mention earlier on in your uh, sort of introductory statements, you had mentioned that this there, there was no historical precedent to these types of lockdowns. And, and it's true in the sense of the business curtailment, this sort of stuff. However, there were there were analogous lockdowns albeit centuries ago so you know different policies and stuff that were tried in london for example during the plague of i believe it was 16 uh, it was either 1665 1666 or something uh as well as when the black death went through what is now italy back then was a cluster of city states there were city states that had just straight up closed their borders. Like they didn't let people in. And they tend to have, they tended to have about a 40% death rate compared to an 80% death rate in places that they just didn't do anything or they responded too late. So there is historical precedent of authoritarian responses to this. Yeah. Uh, well, let, you know, let me virus. let me clarify yeah. then, because because all I was saying was that we haven't had a a global lockdown response uh, that that's okay. never that's never happened where you had almost every country on earth have some form of lockdown so this is this is very unique in that regard um but anyways we don't have to we don't have to harp on yeah. the lockdowns that much I, I think that there's deeper stuff we can get into no no for sure i would just say i think one reason why that's kind of the case is that the black death took 30 years to make its way across all the nations because trade and everything took forever back then whereas now right the last 50, 100 years is really the first time in history when a virus could spread everywhere in the world. That's that's quickly. certainly true. Yeah, globalism has changed the game. Yeah, yeah. So to kind of answer your question about like the Bill of Rights and everything, it's like, yes, like in theory, all this stuff is good. However, if you're so inflexible that 
you can't uh, that you can't essentially take extraordinary means in times of extraordinary crisis, then you're not going to survive it. Now, I don't think the pandemic is necessarily as bad as it's been touted by some people. I could I've said it before. I could have been a lot worse. Like I did a stream about a year ago on the or a little less than a year ago on the Red Death. This idea that eventually, you know, if we don't do anything about China, one day something's going to come out of there. That's going to have like a 30% death rate, like say an antibiotic resistant plague or something. And then, you know, people are going to say, well, you know, we, we were a bit harsh with the pandemic response before and everything. And maybe it's not going to be a big deal this time. And then like a ton of the world's going to die in the first couple of months. But Certainly I think possible. That- that's, that's the downside of, of doing lockdowns when you have a virus that isn't, isn't that severe is that now, now if you have one that is people won't take it seriously. But, but my counter argument to that would be that, you know, you don't really need to have lockdowns if you have a plague that's coming through because people will respond accordingly. And you actually saw that in the first month uh, when lo- lockdowns of businesses were not mandated. People were so concerned. Many were already doing it and they were requiring, you know, masks and social distancing and things of that nature. Uh, my, my belief is is kind of a, a higher faith in humanity and their instinct for survival that these people would have have responded in a responsible manner to try and try and stay alive until they figured out, you know, whether or not this thing was actually as dangerous as Fauci and others were advertising. I think in hindsight, many people feel duped and lied to. And I I think that the knock-on effects from that are going to be very dire if we ever do have a moment of, of sincere crisis where people no longer trust the media and they no no longer trust the politicians. They no, no longer trust the scientists for God's sakes. It's a, it's a very, um, you know, it's a crisis. Yeah, well, I think I think that that's definitely a part of it. Like I've said, I mean, the virus objectively is not as bad as a plague or anything. However, I do think it's the case that it could have been a lot worse if no uh, government involvement had been taken. But one thing that you mentioned was that individuals will kind of like, you know, they have this drive towards self-preservation and whatnot. And that's, and that's true. They, I think that the problem, though, is that as individuals, we can only do so much and we only have so much access to information and that there is a point when the government can come in and correct for externalities that emerge from uh, that sort of uh, issue and actually, you know, have the best interests of society at heart in a way that a society without a state wouldn't have a mechanism of that source to uh, that sort rather to kind of, uh, you know, uh, compel uh, behavior in a sense that, you know, is in the interest of everybody, including those that feel that it's a waste of time or something, you yeah. know, because well, there are vulnerable people uh, amongst us and stuff. Uh, but. Certainly. And I think the vulnerable people would have been the first in line for for quarantining themselves. Um, but, you know, as far as externalities go, I mean, the, the externalities of lockdowns are are profligate. They're everywhere. So uh, it's it's an interesting argument. I, I personally disagree. I, I don't think that the government has a role in in telling us how to live our lives, even in uh, you know epidemic or pandemic type situations. But that's that's a a real ride or die belief in the Bill of Rights um, that obviously we we disagree on. So, anyways, we don't. I, like I said, we really don't have to harp, harp okay. on the lockdowns. It's 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 my it's my uh, bag, but it's I don't want to like occupy the entire time with it. Oh no, that yeah, no, I I get that. We can talk about other stuff. It's just it's kind of interesting because uh, sure. we didn't we didn't get to talking about that with the debate with uh, Keith, for example. We talked more about foreign policy and everything, and right. so this is oh, kind that, of a new angle. But yeah, that, that's that's actually one of 
Yeah, that's actually one other thing I wanted to bring up is that, um, and as I've, I've DM'd you this as well, I, I think that Keith did a fairly good good job. Uh, I know you disagree. And uh, obviously, as a debate, debate opponent, you're going to probably disagree no matter what. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. I, I think he did a pretty good job laying out kind of the uh, the, the historical case for why we are so anti-interventionism. Anti um, so I would like to talk a little bit more about kind of the, the general philosophy and, and whether or not, you know, we have... I wouldn't say common ground to be perfectly honest, um, but okay. if we can if we can understand each other better is kind of what I'm seeking to do. Okay, sure, yeah, go for it. Um, so, so first off, uh, I would like to know a little bit more about about you, if you don't mind. And I don't know I don't know how private you are on your show. Um, I've only seen the debate with Keith, just to be okay. honest. So, um, if you could give me a little bit of your background, because I, I gave you mine, so just so I know where we're coming from. Yeah, sure. So basically, you know, all this is public information. I'm a 27-year-old recent graduate uh, at university, did a degree in economics, political science. I am basically, a, I, I describe myself as a liberal neoconservative with offensive realist uh, characteristics. So what that means essentially is that uh, I believe in the preserver, uh, preservation of the Enlightenment and the expansion of the Enlightenment, the West, as we see it, the Western project throughout the world. I'm a moral universalist. I run a meme page called Liberal Hawk Memes for Moral Universalist Teens. We got about 2,500 followers over there. And that's basically, you know, uh, the idea that, well, democracy doesn't just matter here. It's an inherent virtue that is morally superior throughout the world. In other words, if I'm born in the United States or if I'm born in the UK, I can recognize that the West is the best. But if I'm born in Russia or born in North Korea, I can also recognize that the West is the best and try my best to try to get out, you know, the hell out of there, you know, if possible. And we do have defectors and stuff that, you know, you ask those defectors, where would you rather live, North Korea or America? They'd say, well, like they miss the food or they, you know, they like having people that they can communicate with from North Korea. But if you ask them, where would they rather be if you could speak the same language and, you know, and now that they'd rather have the rights that Americans have, basically. And so for me, kind of a bit about my background, I started YouTube shortly after graduating, and I've been making videos basically, for the most part, focused on interventionism, on national security issues, on international relations at large on a theoretical standpoint, and really kind to trying to rather kind of snap people out of this, uh, this idea that well, you can support democracy, you can support human rights, you can support uh, virtues in the West, but think that, well, but who are we to say that that's better than what they have in North Korea or Iran or whatever? Whereas for me, part of my project here is to try to say, yeah, we are the best and we should be proud of that. So that's okay. that's a little bit about me. Is there anything else that you uh, wanted to know? Yeah, uh, I would like to understand um, a bit of your political arc. I mean, everyone has okay. their own their own evolution. I, I I was lucky in that my my dad was actually a libertarian. He ran for Congress in the 90s. So I, I got a very early indoctrination into this. And then I kind of did my own research and evolved towards uh, anarcho-capitalism. Uh, it's, it is odd. It is unusual to see someone in their 20s who is a neoconservative in, in my experience. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. genuinely curious how you came to these conclusions. Yeah, no, no, no fair enough. I mean, I, I know some people might like say, oh, well, that's kind of like, Oh, like take offense to it or whatever. It's like no, it's it's true. I, I make that point yeah. on the show all the time. There aren't very many of us right now. You know, it's it's yeah. a it's a small thing. It's a niche thing in that sense right now. I'm, and, I'm trying and I to, don't I don't mean it as a slight to say that it's unusual. Yeah. I just don't encounter it very often. 
Yeah, and it's like, and the thing is, like, to to be fair too, uh, even though there are more uh, people on your side that are young, it's also kind of rare to be anarcho capitalist. Oh yeah, we're both we're we're, we're both tremendously <laughs> minority ideologies. So yeah. I, there there is no superiority coming off on this yeah. end. I, I realize that it's it's a, a niche product. Yeah, so that's the thing. That's actually one of the areas, like you know, not common ground per se, but a bit of you know, we we both are in an uphill battle in terms yep, of our. Yep. Um, yeah. you know, worldview because like I, I don't see us as being interventionist enough. And I, I think it would be fair to say you you regard Western foreign policy as too interventionist. Is that is Tremendous. that right? Tremendously okay. so. Yeah. And yeah, and you're you're in Canada, correct? Yeah, well, I live in Canada. That's right. I, I would ideally like to immigrate to the United States at some point in the future. That's what I'm looking at doing. I'm just uh, clearing up debt and everything now from school first before I do any like big life moves like that. But sure. I, ideally, I'd like to live in either Florida or Texas because uh, you can actually afford to retire in those places, for example. So that that, that is true. Um, well, I guess my my question for you first off is: Do you envision the same kind of hawkish mentality for the Canadian government, or is this strictly an American, mm. you know, hegemony? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question because sometimes people say things like, "Oh, you just want the U.S. to do work for you" or whatever. It's like, no, I've been very clear. I want all NATO countries to spend what Reagan did between 6% and 8% of GDP on the military. We have a problem with NATO where the U.S. is one of the only countries that actually pulls their weight and they pay about 2.5%. In Canada right now, it's around 1%. It's really embarrassing. So, I mean, obviously, everybody knows Trudeau's the prime minister of Canada. I despise Justin Trudeau. I, I, I think, you know, I don't talk about that as much because most of my audience is American. But Trudeau is a disgrace. He said that he admires the basic dictatorship of the Communist Party in China, for example. And so for me, my project is that I want Canada to become, uh, you know, a neocon sort of country. I want America to be. I want the UK to be. I want, you know, Israel to be. I want uh, Poland. Like every, all of us, we need to spend a lot more on defense. Poland, actually, and Israel and the U.S. all spend more than most of NATO. But for all of us, it's nowhere near what it was in the uh, 1980s. And the way that I see it is we're in a Cold War against two powers now, whereas before we were in a Cold War just with the Soviet Union. Now we're in a Cold War with Russia and China. And we need to spend a lot to guarantee our security. And okay. so all the policies that I advocate that the United States do, like I said, I'm a moral universalist. I, I don't discriminate. I want the exact same policies in Canada. I said it before, like if I was prime minister of Canada, we would be drilling a ton of oil. We would be getting rid of the carbon tax. We'd be uh, increasing military spending to, you know, 8% of GDP. Now that'd take a while, it'd take a while. And we would be uh, doing away with the welfare state and replacing it with a negative income tax. That's what I want for the, all Western countries. And I want to make the world the West. So well, I'll agree with you on getting rid of the income tax. Um, I, I would, I would question your, you know, moral universalist theology. Uh, I don't, I do not understand how that's any different from wanting global, global governance. I mean, are you, are you still advocating for there to be separate nations or are you, are you looking for a single, you know, global okay. governance? Yeah. So basically what I kind of aim for is like a federation of democracies down the road where like all countries are democratic, but ideally way down the road because the international system is an unstable equilibrium. Uh, I think that the ultimate steady state, the, the best equilibrium for the world would be that the United States of America just become the United States and have like Pakistan, have 
Uruguay just be states the same way that Montana and Florida are today. So like, you know, one capital in Washington, D.C. So a lot of people say like, oh, you're a globalist. It's like, I'm not a neoliberal, though. I, I want to get rid of the U.N. I want the U.S. to be like the uh, world uh, country, basically. So, well, given given the the downsides to the U.N., which you're obviously aware of, um, why would you why would you have such faith that the American government would maintain the same principles that you intend to have implemented globally. I mean, it, do you not see the inherent risk in having a single global hegemon that can, you know, just push their will on everybody? Yeah, so the end state of humanity is for there to be a global hegemon. Like there will be a lot of wars going forward, uh, but eventually it'll be resolved with one power that's a, actually a stable equilibrium. It might take 18,000 years, may take 400 years. It really depends, but well, it's can, gonna be, please, it's please gonna be, lay, yeah, lay out, lay out how you came to that conclusion real quick. Oh, why, okay. Yeah. Why, so, why do you believe that? I don't, I don't see it as, as a sure. natural conclusion. So, so the world is anarchic and, and I mean that on the international system level. So there's no world police. States are going to do what they're going to do. And if the bad guys go in and conquer, you know, a good country and enslave them and kill people and stuff, if nobody intervenes, they're going to get away with it. Like, they, like they're, in other words, the world is like the Lord of the Flies. And so in that, states advance their own interests and great power states advance their interests in ways that smaller power states would like to do, but they can't because they don't have the uh, economic base to do so. They don't have the military base to do so. And so for all intents and purposes, you're going to have one of the great powers become you know, the unipolar hegemon, like the United States was more or less in the 1990s, but that that's an unstable equilibrium in and of itself, because you can always have the emergence of new rivals, but eventually there will be another world war, and that's going to result in another big change to the international system, and I think it's going to result in the consolidation of power by the victor, and that will either be Russia, China, or the United States, basically, and I think that we're at a point where they're dead set on their ways and advancing their interests. Whereas for us, we've got a lot of people in our countries in the West that think that we're the bad guys and they've got like guilt and everything and uh, defeatism and all that kind of stuff. And so right now, I think it's it's possible that unless, you know, we have a sea change in the political culture, that it's pro that it would be China that would just eventually subsume the world or or Russia down the road. But no matter what, until you have that world state, there's always going to be wars. It's always going to be unstable. So that's uh, that's kind of the uh, the issue there. And so for me, recognizing that and recognizing that even if I like a smaller country, like like say that I like Luxembourg more than America, I can recognize that Luxembourg doesn't have the base that they don't have the power to contend in that running so for me i root for the country that's closest to what i believe in to be the dominant power and that's the united states it doesn't mean i agree with the u.s government on everything but i agree with them on more than china and russia and the u.s has a system that allows for self-improvement over time that communist china fascist russia just don't so what what would you do to the countries that that do not go along with your your master plan yeah, so uh, we've got a lot right now. We got obviously Syria, we got Russia, we got China, we got North Korea, we got Iran. Sorry, uh, let me let me slow you down. Yeah, uh, all of these countries are not going along with your master plan at this point. Every, pretty much every country on Earth, because your your goal is to have 
a single glo global hegemon. So how like you're you're basically saying, I honestly just this is going to sound mean, and I and I yep. don't intend to, but I don't see a tremendous difference between what you're laying out from what Nazi Germany said. I mean, there's a, a level of moral certitude. There's global domination. We're going to have one global governance. It, like yours yours isn't race-based per se, but it still seems as if um, that's what you're calling for is is essentially a, a, a dominant a dominant military that takes over the, the entire planet. No? Well, I would say that that's a false equivalence because the Nazis were based on extermination of racial minorities and an empire-based system where the mother country ruled over everybody else. What I'm arguing for is a liberation system where the whole world becomes the U.S. with the same rights and privileges. But, but if people don't want, if people don't want your your view of liberation, what do you do with these people? I mean, you have other countries that that are very proud to be what they are, and and while you and I may disagree philosophically or even morally on what they they want for themselves, um, I don't see how it's our place to basically bomb them into. Uh, getting along or you know getting in line with our belief system uh, so so genuinely I'm asking like what what would you do to these countries that are not necessarily you know it's not North Korea it's not Syria um, I don't right. know some country that's that's in between that you you obviously isn't American but also uh, is not pure evil are you are you still calling for them to essentially I don't know overthrow their government cede their power to the American Union of some sort like what what is the right. the game plan the end plan Yeah yeah so I think it's important to distinguish between the people and the regime so obviously say Syria the Syrian people want human rights they want freedom they want their own uh you know their own ability to be free in their own uh homes and stuff like that Assad doesn't want to be a part of the world order Assad has to go basically so to answer your question there are two different means so with great superpowers great powers like china and russia war is not the solution i talk about how it would actually be very easy to deal with china all that you would do is as a world community or even just as the u.s say we're not trading with you anymore you're done we're going to take a really big financial hit but you guys are cut off from trade and the people would lose their jobs over there and they would overthrow the communists within a year and so they they'd be done you wouldn't have to do a nuclear war with them isn't and that exactly what we did with japan though man i mean isn't that what what brought about pearl harbor is that we embargoed them oh well it's very possible i want to be clear here it, it is possible that they don't respond to it the you know favorably and they open fire on blockading vessels the u.s would win a war though like they know that so they wouldn't make that move if they did make if that move, if you're economically starving them if you're economically yeah. starving them, it's it's almost obligatory that they make that call. I mean, it's it's really you're playing with fire. I mean, you're playing with fire with the nuclear power. I just think it's very reckless to think that you can embargo China, a nuclear power, and expect them to behave rationally. Um, I mean, right? So. It's a danger, so the, is what I'm saying. Yeah, so China and the West are inevitably going to come into a military conflict if we don't destroy them economically. I'd rather I'd rather have a small-scale limited war with them, say, in a year, than wait for them to initiate the war in, say, 60 years when they have, say, the same number of nukes. Right now, they don't have very many nukes, for example. So uh, the U.S. would win a war with them right now. They would probably win a war with the U.S. in 60 years. So I'd why, do, rather, why do you think it's inevitable? I'm curious. I, I really don't, I don't see it as inevitable. Uh, because the free world can't coexist with islands or continents of slavery. Like we have islands of freedom in the world and we have continents of slavery. 
and we can't have peaceful coexistence with them. They have imperial ambitions to, you know, control the world. And America has ambitions that counter that. So you're, you're going to you're going to absolutely hate this response, but uh, and you're going to call it moral rel relativism. But uh, it's it's very challenging for me to, to hear you describe other countries as slave states when we have, I think, either the highest or the second highest per capita imprisonment rate in America. Um, so like I, you just you support all the laws of America is that. Is the war on drugs everything? Uh, you talked briefly about I, the war I on drugs. The war on drugs, yeah. And 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 I know that was based off of history with your father, which I don't want to get into because it's far too personal. But I am curious, uh, given that there there are plenty of examples where decriminalization has been tried after there was harsh prohibition, and you had decreasing rates of drug addiction. You had you know far far better responses from the addicts in those communities. Uh, why is it that you still believe you know we have Two million people in prison in America, and you know we're the land of the free. Allegedly, that that rubs me the wrong way. It rubs many libertarians the wrong way. I do not understand how you justify that. So, if you could lay out your case, I'd appreciate it. Yeah. So it's not just because like my dad was a drug addict or anything. It's because I can recognize that drugs are moral uh, drain on society. For example, I think that we can expect better from our government than just giving up and just letting society become, you know, rot with uh, nihilism, all that kind of stuff. I think that what's clear is that, you know, uh, with the situation in the United States, I, I would regard it as moral relativism for sure, because you're comparing a system in communist China that's literally detaining millions of people based on their ethnicity, you know, in terms of the Uyghurs, not to mention all the Han Chinese people that get disappeared in the night for being accused of being uh, critical of the regime, for example, or guilt by association, that kind of stuff. Whereas in America, you've got a legitimate uh, recognized uh, code of laws that's, you know, obviously passed by elected representatives. And if you break those laws, even if you disagree with what the laws are, if you break the law, you're still going to be arrested for it. And so I, I think it's different. Now you could say, well, I think that we should overturn what some of these laws are and everything. There's a legal process to do that in, but I wouldn't regard the U.S. prison system as slavery. Some people are wrongfully convicted. That's true. But people are also wrongfully convicted in China all the time on a much greater scale. So, Well, I would argue that that moral degeneracy is putting in you know, nonviolent people into prison. So why why is it that just because someone has a lifestyle or makes a decision that you disagree with, which I would also disagree with, I am not a drug user, never have been. Um, I just simply believe people should have their free will to make that own choice for themselves. And ultimately also, I believe that, you know, historically we can demonstrate pretty definitively that you can, you can deal with drug addiction in a much more holistic fashion than imprisoning people for life sometimes. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, like, do you, do you not believe that people should have the right to choose to do drugs? I mean, obviously alcohol is legal. There's plenty of things that are, are legal that, that kill people all the time. Uh, would you, would you implement your morality to ban all of them? Well, I, I just, I, I can answer that. I do just have one quick question, though, which is how does somebody who's a drug addict exercise liberty? Like, how does being addicted to meth, for example, how do you exercise liberty when you're addicted to drugs? That, that's just my quick question. And then I can answer yours. So Sure. Uh, I mean, I think it is liberty to do drugs if you want to. And and I've known plenty of, you know, cocaine addicts, meth addicts that that had 
fairly functioning lifestyles. Uh, now, that's not to say that there aren't people whose lives are completely ruined by drugs. That's a given. Of course there are. Uh, but I don't feel certain enough that, one, I'm a moral arbiter to tell everyone that they should live how I do. I think that's very dangerous. And two, give the state the power to imprison someone, throw them in the cage because they do something that I disagree with um, that hasn't hurt anybody. Like, what? Why do you think that it's the state's responsibility to to protect someone from themselves and put them in prison as opposed to let them languish in drug addiction in your worst case scenario or OD and die? I still think that it's a much more moral degeneracy viewpoint to think that you should cage them for decades. Well, I think that uh, by and large, I differentiate between the user who in a way is a victim of uh, drugs versus the dealers. Like my focus is on getting rid of the dealers and punishing the dealers. I, I don't regard somebody who is addicted to drugs and needs to buy drugs. I don't regard them as like, you know, some heinous villain in society. What I do regard as a heinous villain are those that uh, propagate uh, drug addiction and everything. I, I, so in particular, when we talk about it as a nonviolent crime, there's a difference between a nonviolent crime being a drug addict and needing to get your fix versus selling it. So for me, I consider selling drugs to be a violent crime. I don't consider buying drugs to be violent, but it is still it is still criminal under the laws as they are right now. But no matter what we reform it to, I still think that selling this stuff should be illegal. And I think that okay. you asked you asked about the morality of it. I think that that's one of the ways that the government can come in and, and correct for the negative externalities of people not necessarily knowing what's best for them. And I want to live in a system where the government is looking out for you know the people that it's responsible for. I think that that is one area where having a government is preferable to not having a government is that sort of, you know, you could call it compassionate conservatism, whatnot, paternalism, that sort of thing. I think that there's a role there, uh, as long as the government's not corrupt, not malicious or anything, there's a role there that the government can actually improve society by making calls that are in everybody's best interest. Because once you become addicted to drugs, you lose your liberty to make rational choices thereafter, right? Like you might have the freedom to make that choice to become addicted to it, but once you're addicted to drugs, you're no longer exercising liberty in a uh, in a rational sense. I, I have to, I have to disagree. I mean, there there are plenty of addicts that that kick their addictions. Uh, did they not have liberty to do so? Well, I think that it would be better had they not become addicted in the first place. That that's kind of my view of okay. it. I think that we can do better as a society than to just leave everybody be on their own to fend for themselves in that sense. And I'm oh. a pretty free market guy compared to, you know, obviously people on the left and stuff. But I do think that there's a place for a social safety net. That's why I support a negative income tax. And I think that there's a place for paternalism. That's why I support the government having higher standards than just allowing these kinds of things to to ruin lives of uh, the citizenry. So. Well, I, I, I'm going to have to push back against you saying that it ruins lives because, or, or, you know, wanting to help people from having their lives ruined. You putting people behind bars for decades, labeling them felons, and then having them come out and not be able to get fucking work is definitely ruining some lives. So do you actually care about the addicted or is it more about keeping your society in, in an appearance or having the visage that you agree with? Well, if you said to me, you don't think that people who buy drugs uh, should go to jail, 
that'd be an interesting conversation and I'm open to that. I don't have a firm stance on that one way or another because okay. I can see there, how many common ground. <laughs> but I think that selling drugs, that's my issue primarily. Okay. Like if a drug addict buys drugs, I don't think they should go to jail for life. I don't think they should go to jail for uh, very long. However, I can understand the argument saying, well, if you make it okay to buy drugs, then who are you to say that it's illegal to sell drugs just from a you know hypocrisy stance, that sort of thing? I do think they're really different issues, but I know people like Ben Shapiro would make that argument where they'd say, well, if it's okay to buy them, why shouldn't it then be okay to sell them? And obviously, I don't regard it as okay to sell it. So, Right. Well, as a free market you know, capitalist, I, I do believe that it should be legal to sell drugs, and I don't think that prohibition works. Um, so... I strongly oppose it on many levels. I think that it doesn't help people. I think it ruins lives. And I think that ultimately, uh, neither you or I are the moral arbiter. If someone isn't hurting someone else, I don't feel as if I can cage them, period. And and I just think that it's it takes a level of hubris, to be honest, to feel that way, to feel that you can imprison someone for doing something that isn't hurting anybody but themselves. It's like it's like suicide laws. It's like you just, you just shouldn't be... Uh, well, first off, I mean, obviously, if someone kills themselves, you can't really enforce it. But there have right. been laws against suicide. I think it's nonsense. Like people should have the right to take their own lives. They should have the right to become drug addicts. But if that drug addiction gets into an area in which they hurt the community in, in terms of theft or driving drunk and killing somebody, things of that nature, certainly you have to have mechanisms to to remove them from society, at least for a time. Um, but I do not. I, and I'm glad to hear. Honestly, I'm glad to hear that, that you could, uh, you know, come a little bit to my side on on perhaps not imprisoning people that are just simple drug users if they are nonviolent. I think that that's a step in the right direction. So anyways, we can move on to the next topic. I well, yeah, I, had, I just had one other question though, which is that uh, when you mentioned how they're hurting nobody but themselves, uh, my focus is on the drug dealers. I don't regard selling, say, meth and that kind of stuff as nonviolent. I think that, you know, there sure, there are people that can do that recreationally, and it's not really that much of an issue for them. But then you know that they're also selling it to people where that's going to ruin their kids' lives, their other people. Like they're, you, you, in other words, you have to bear in mind the, the moral effects of what you do in each of your actions and that there's an effect to selling drugs that can trickle down and ruin a lot of people and you don't know which way it's gonna go. And so I do think that there's a moral culpability there where I don't regard that as a nonviolent action. I actually regard it as inherently violent in terms of the effect that it has. It's not the same as like punching somebody, but it's well, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna run with that line of of reasoning, you have to support imprisoning bartenders, liquor store owners, all the way down the line, because way more people die from alcohol than they do from many drugs. You have to you have to imprison people who get addicted to prescription drugs. I mean, there are tons and tons of drugs in society that kill people and ruin lives all the time. So the the arbitrary line where you say, yeah, this drug dealer who sells Coke has to go to prison for life, whereas this guy who sells uh, or prescribes Oxycontin to people whose lives also get ruined from it, they, they get, you know, quarter million dollar salaries and, and uh, vacations in the Bahamas. I think it's a fucked up, you know, way of thinking personally. And, and I don't like having arbitrary lines when it comes to imprisoning pre people like it it needs to be very consistent and and i think that the consistent stance if you want to take it is to say that 
anyone doing any drug that hurts them has to go to prison or or not not the person doing it but anyone selling any drug that hurts anybody has to go to prison and and i hope that you wouldn't make that argument i think that the more rational logical conclusion is to say that people need to make their own choices and as a community we need to lift up those that are drug addicted and and riddled with addiction um as opposed to imprisoning them uh but that's you know utopic if if you want to call it that well, i maybe one day yeah, I, I would say again that there's a there's definitely a difference between say you know selling drugs uh, on the black market versus prescribing things from a medicinal standpoint. I I, I do think that that is a you know a bit of a false equivalency there. I, I think that there is still a difference, and I think that uh, just because you can't address every problem in society doesn't mean you can't do some good, and that you can't get rid of some problems, and so. I, I think, you know, yeah, alcohol. You, you and I both know how many people die from cigarettes and alcohol, though, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm well aware of that. I think cigarettes, especially, that the, there's a better case to be made there for more strict government intervention on that. But I would say, especially in terms of the effect that it has on other people as well, I, I think that you can make a very similar argument. But I would say, you know. It, 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 given with the way that the political culture is right now, it's easier to keep things illegal than it is to make things illegal. And if we can at least prevent the scourge of things like meth addiction and that kind of stuff, why not at least settle for that? that that's my kind of view. Why not make some good, even if you well, can't make everything better? Because because the people that are in prison that are nonviolent drug offenders do not agree that you're making things better. And and those people matter too. So that that kind of was my question as to is is this an actual concern for the drug addict or is this just about molding society into a an image that you you advocate for and you know i i think that it's more utopic to believe that you can imprison people that have uh, different lifestyles from you to have a society which you would prefer to live in you know i don't enjoy having drug addicts or homeless people around me either you know that that is a serious societal issue but I would much rather find ways to assist them as opposed to imprison them. And I think that that is to circle back to why I think it's very hard to say that China is a, a slave state and we're a free state. Uh, you can't have 2 million plus people in prison and call yourself a free state. I'm sorry, you just can't. Now, I'm not saying we're the same. I'm not saying we're even close to the same. But I think it's very far-fetched to still describe America as a free state given the amount of people that are in prison right now that haven't hurt anybody, man. Like these people haven't hurt anybody. It, it, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional, but it really, it fucks me up. It fucks me up to think about how many nonviolent drug offenders are in prison forever. And they've been there forever. And their kids are at home. You want to talk about societal good? Like what about, what about the, the damage that comes from these nonviolent people that are in prison that can't raise their kids? I know you care about culture. Do you not care about them raising their kids? You know, like this is, right. so, it goes deep, man. So if we, if we did things my way though, there would be no drug addicts down the road and society would be infinitely better off in that sense. And so you talked about it as being an image and this kind of thing, but no, if we did things my way in 50 years, there, this wouldn't be an issue anymore. We would have a, a, a more productive and healthy society. Just That's, that's a, a fascinating perspective. You think that people would ever stop doing drugs? just because you criminalize it so aggressively? I mean, you have drug use all over the planet. I mean, prohibition simply does not work. 
We have more people addicted today than we did, you know, 50 years ago. And it's not even close. So I, I'm just, I'm stunned. I'm stunned to hear you say that. I'm stunned to think that uh, that you believe. Uh, you, is it sincere? You honestly believe that 50 to 75 years from now, uh, if given your druthers, that we could have no drug addiction in the world? Well, not, not in the world. I'm just talking about the United States. If we had, you know, neocons for 75 years in the U.S. with a consistent policy that went hard after uh, drug dealers and really focused on, you know, getting rid of the nihilism and actually building, you know, this sense of community and everything in society. And, you know, we we actually, you know, made it a, a real effort to... Have we uh, not made a real effort to end the war on... I mean, to, to win the war on drugs? You really think that it has been lackluster? Well, it's it, it's been nominal. It, it's it's targeted the drugs and stuff. It hasn't taken into account economic conditions. It hasn't taken into account culture. It hasn't taken into account a lot of the things that give rise to drug addiction. I want a more holistic approach to it than simply just going after drug dealers. But I do want to go after drug dealers. But I also want to try to solve the problems for why people uh, get into that in the first place, right? So, you know, that's kind of what I'm focused on. But I would say... I, I would push back on the line about how you can't call a country a free society if there are 2 million people in prison, because in the United States, obviously, there's only about a fifth as many people as in China. And what if, for example, all those one two million people had done violent crimes and they happen to be convicted and locked up? I think you could still call a country a free country if 2 million people are there, if they rightfully belong in prison. And so yeah. I, I do over think half of them, over half of them are nonviolent, though. So we should acknowledge that. And and if you have a million people that are in prison that are nonviolent, I, th I don't think you can describe it as a free state. Um, I, we can agree to disagree on this, but uh, I really, I really strongly believe that if you want to call America, you know, the moral arbiter and have have the entire globe model our governance, you really need to get this ironed out because nonviolent people, especially given your background, man, I'm I'm honestly surprised that that you're not more sympathetic to the addict. You know, to the fact that these people are put away forever for not hurting anybody but themselves. Now, again, I totally believe in having laws where a drug addicted person hurts someone else, you know, violently. Um, but if they're just a drug addict who's struggling to survive but still making it, and then they get hit in some sting operation and they spend the next 20 years of their life in prison, it's fucked up. I mean, it is a complete atrocity. And and I'm just, I don't know. I hope I hope you'll give it further thought. Well, I, I I really, I really do. I gotta, I gotta ask you a question though, Clint. Which is that? Look, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should imprison people for simply being addicted to drugs. But you do understand, like you, you have to understand that they do create a demand for the drug dealers to operate. In other words, if there was nobody buying the drugs, they wouldn't be able to operate. That's the argument for uh, the the prison approach to basically say we have a zero tolerance on this sort of thing. But I would say though. I, I would say additionally, when you talked about how, well, about 50% are nonviolent, you're also including drug dealers in that. And I don't regard drug dealers as nonviolent. And I really do think that, you know, if the laws are what they are, you can change them through the legal process, but the laws are still on the books. In other words, just because I disagree with what a law is doesn't mean that that gives me carte blanche to go and uh, break it. It's kind of the same thing with Edward Snowden. You can make the argument that Edward Snowden really felt that he was, you know, doing the right thing or whatever, but it's not his place. And he's still, he's still violated and, and, and infringed upon national security, especially in the case of Chelsea Manning, where it's like, I mean, they genuinely believed they were doing the right thing. 
that that's not their prerogative. They need to follow the law still. So there, there was a time in which it was illegal to, you know, free slaves. So were those people wrong to do so? Well, I, I would say that that's a bit of a false equivalence because I, I regard slavery as a, a uh, an ill on society the same way that I do with meth and whatnot. So it is a bit different in that case. So, uh, Brother, I'm, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's pretty similar. I mean, you have people that are imprisoned. They work for pennies right now for being nonviolent drug offenders. And you have people that basically worked for room and board and were whipped if they didn't work fast enough. And it was illegal to help them get free. Uh, I think that if you're going to talk about morality and you're going to talk about following the law, it's really important that you consider all of the historical examples of absolute atrocities that were law. And, and I, again, I don't want to go back to Nazi Germany, but the prison guards were doing their job, man. You know, they were following the law. Like this is a really fucked up way of looking at the world to think that, that it's, it's okay to, to look the other way when people are being enslaved simply because it was the law at the time. You know? Well, no, I, I'm not making that argument. I regard the laws of Nazi Germany as illegitimate. I don't recognize their sovereignty or anything. I do recognize the sovereignty of the American government. Uh, I, I do consider the laws of the American government to be legitimate. So the, In the, the 1800s, were they legitimate? Uh, uh, slavery was not legitimate, no. And the Confederacy okay. was illegitimate. But okay. um, but the, the United States today... In, in, in this year again, I, I don't, I don't think that you can compare it to slavery. I think that that, I think that that makes light of slavery, uh, personally, and uh, I think it makes light of of people being put in prison for thirty years. I mean, uh, well, but, they broke the law, Like, if you do break the law, and the yeah. law are the laws are on the books, it's like, well, they broke it, an arbitrary law that you decided, not that I decided. But it's not arbitrary. It like, is arbitrary. Yeah, it's absolutely arbitrary. Whether or not you're addicted to cocaine or you're addicted to oxycotton, one you're allowed to function in society, and if you're addicted to the other, you spend your entire life in prison. How is that not arbitrary? Well, one was prescribed by a medical professional. The other is you're giving cocaine money. used to be prescribed by medical professionals too, brother. Come on. Yeah, but I'm I'm saying that there's a difference between a trained medical doctor that's literally spent the majority of their life studying. Uh, the medical uh, field and everything prescribing something that might have some harmful side effects to a patient versus drug addiction. And I, I actually they, regard they used to prescribe cocaine, brother. I, yeah. But again, it's a different if a doctor does it versus and also they had bad technology back then, like technology advances. So I think that these anachronisms, this kind of stuff doesn't necessarily work. But I would say I would say that I regard the actually uh, inducing people to become addicted to drugs is comparable to slavery in some sense. It, I'm not saying it's the same thing or anything. I'm just saying if you sell drugs and you ruin lives and you get like dads addicted to drugs and stuff like that, and now they can't exercise their liberty or anything. Well, it, it's, it's kind of like you've just stolen people's autonomy and their agency and everything. And so uh, well, I, you, I, you better be, you better be imprisoning the CEOs of, of big pharma. I mean, I don't know that there's been more lives from the cartel or from big pharma, but it's pretty fucking close. So uh, I think it's an interesting argument. I, I totally disagree. I don't think that either are immoral, but I think that having an arbitrary line is immoral because you have people that are functioning in the black market, which are giving a, you know, a product that there's demand for to people that want it. And then you have doctors, sure. But you have also, you have you know prescription mills that are just 
shitting out prescriptions for drug addicts all, all day, every day. It happened all through the 20 or uh, all, all over the past 20 years um, with the Oxycontin stuff. So I, I think that the, the line is arbitrary. And for that, uh, you know, I cannot get on board. Uh, but regardless, I, I think that it's it's really it's sad to me to hear that, you know, you think that a, a law that exists in modern America is just instantly just. I just simply disagree. Well, you can overturn laws, though. What I'm saying is that the system is just and that if you don't like a law, you can lobby to have it removed through the democratic process. I don't think that you should, though, just break the law because you say that a law is unjust. I still think that that demonstrates criminal behavior. What it, what it really demonstrates is it demonstrates a, a an inability to abide by the social contract that we have as a society and it, it goes to a broader disregard for the the laws and the state and and our society as a whole. And that if we just tolerate people basically saying, well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to recognize the sovereignty of the government here. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, in aggregate, that's a huge problem and we can't tolerate that. That's that's what I would say there. And so even if somebody breaks a law that I don't think should be on the books, I can still see why the court's going to take it as a serious uh, crime because if you just say, well, I don't agree with this law, it's like, okay, but by that logic, a pedophile could say, yeah, I touched a kid, but I don't believe that pedophilia should be illegal. It's like, yeah, but that's not your place to say if you don't think it's- But there's a victim there, man. Yeah, but there's a victim in selling drugs, though. There's a victim in both cases, both uh, in both- I don't agree. I don't agree. Well, I, I I do believe so. So we we we'll just have to agree to disagree there. I don't. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. So we can move on to the uh, the next topic. So sure. Want to get to? Um. Well, I guess uh, you, you know you're obviously a big fan of our our defense uh, industrial complex. Uh, yeah. I, I'm curious is there is there any other industry that exists at all that you believe functions better with a monopoly? Oh, uh, functions better with a monopoly. Well, I think that, you know, Alfred Marshall back in the day, he talked about how in the early 20th century, he he basically talked about the corporate life cycles. And he talked about how in particular industries, there are industries that naturally tend towards a monopoly such that uh, trying to keep the market free isn't going to work because of, you know, the natural barriers to entry and stuff. He talked about, you know, utilities and whatnot, and that there's a case to be made there that in order to reduce deadweight loss to society, the government is better off to actually recognize that one of those firms is going to be a monopoly, but that with that privilege comes the responsibility that you basically have to uh, treat everybody fairly. You can't not sell electricity to somebody just because they disagree with your company, that kind of thing. And so uh, there are other sectors for sure that that work, that that not only do they work better as a monopoly, but that if you leave the free market to do its thing, it will just, it will, it will reach a stable equilibrium, which is a monopoly. And that's true in, um, you know, a lot of more local, uh, um, what you call it, mining type operation. It's, it's true in uh, power production. Oftentimes it can even be true in tech sectors, for example, uh, that there are places, there are sectors in the economy that just happen to tend towards uh, monopolies because they're characterized generally by very high barriers to entry, uh, few players, 
and uh and you know the sort of volatility where eventually there's going to be a monopolist that emerges and at that point you're better off saying okay well there's going to be a monopoly here uh but they're going to have to follow some rules so that we can avoid them you know just basically being a tyrant within the market so well i mean there's plenty of examples where utility companies have been caught up uh you know price gouging and doing all these things that are allegedly supposed to be prevented under mm-hmm. this this prescribed system and i i believe that the same rules apply when it comes to the us military i'm curious uh, I, I guess i shouldn't be curious i i think i know the answer already but um, my my vantage point is that uh, pri- you know private defense or having uh, options for defense would be a, a far superior system. It would allow for us to both cut costs and also have more efficient uh, defense for the nation. Uh, your belief is that the monopolistic practices that we've utilized to get to where we are today are in fact the not only the only option but the better one. Well. I think when it, we're talking about the military, we need to look at it from two levels. I think there's the actual military in terms of the standing armed forces. And then there's also the military production side of things, which is, you know, oftentimes you'll have private companies and everything. On the, on the side of the standing army, the Navy, et cetera, that has to be a nationalized thing. That has to be a state thing because, you know, this is something that Machiavelli talked about hundreds of years ago. He said, you know, if you rely on mercenaries, and he was going off of the experience of Italian city-states, if you rely on mercenaries, in times of peace, they're going to charge more than soldiers normally would because soldiers, you don't have to pay them as much as mercenaries. But then in wartime, who's to stop the French from just offering your mercenaries more and then they come over and kill you? And so... Uh, I, I think that mercenaries because it's their homeland, brother. You think you think that mercenaries that are in America would turn against their people just because someone offers them a pay raise? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that I think that if we get rid of uh, the sense of patriotism and whatnot, and we just surrender to nihilism and relativism, there's nothing to stop people from just going and working for the Russians or something. We see that right now. We see people leave America like Peter Lavelle did and go and work at Russia Today and do propaganda for Putin, and yet he. He got everything, his education, everything from America, and he went and worked for the Russians. And, and well, I'm talking about a war of defense, though, man. This is you're talking about an invasion from another power. You think that people would would you know turn against their their family, their neighbors, and, and just allow themselves to be conquered because someone offers them a, a pay bump? I, I, it's surprising. I I, I would yeah. as someone who's would you describe yourself as a nationalist? Uh, that's a little bit of a tricky one in general, yes, but I, I, I'm not a nationalist in the sense that I think that everybody in every country in the world should be nationalist for their country. I'm a, I'm a Western exceptionalist. I think I that gotcha. Western countries, nationalism is good. In Russia, nationalism is bad. North Korea, well, nationalism if, is bad. If America is good, yeah. why, do you, why do you think so lowly of the American people? That they would turn, they would be traitors. I mean, genuinely traitors in the most technical sense. Because right now, and it's not the American people, I'm just talking about freak cases. I'm talking about, you know, particular military contractors, that kind of thing. Uh, because uh, we, we've we've got a society, we've got a culture that doesn't really have pride in, in, in the nation and whatnot anymore. And I think it's very, it's very clear and it's very evident throughout history that mercenaries would oftentimes betray their initial patrons and go and take contracts from other patrons and that they don't really have allegiance in the same sense. But even if we ignore that, even if we just say that that's not an issue, it's also clear that they don't have the same ethical conduct and rules of engagement as the standing forces, yet they can make your country look bad. An example of this is Blackwater. People talk about war crimes that America did in Iraq 
and they'll point at Blackwater. But Blackwater is not the United States military. They did they did war crimes, and yet America gets blamed for it. But they were not the American military, and I think that they're a PR nightmare. I, if I were in charge, I would just ban private military contractors in that sense, and and have yeah, you can make weapons for the military and be private. But the military needs to be a fully uh, state uh, operation. You know, I, I have to point out that every every example you utilize there was wars of aggression. So if you're going to have mercenaries, yes, they might they might uh, you know turn sides to uh, to get a pay raise when it's when they're attacking some other nation. But uh, I'm not familiar or I'm not aware of any historical examples where mercenaries turned against their nation and and took a pay raise. I mean, I, I've, I'm let me take that back. I'm sure there are some examples, but in the grand scope of things, I think it's very, it's very pessimistic to believe that uh, an American, you know, militia or mercenaries, if you want to call them that, would turn against their own people as they are being invaded by a foreign power. Um, mm -hmm. Militias are different. A lot of the libertarian militias and stuff that that train for an invasion and stuff, and you know, they they volunteer out of their own time to protect their communities and stuff. I don't think they would. Okay. Uh, Blackwater and these kinds of guys, I, I just don't trust them. They've demonstrated that they don't really have much of a moral compass or anything. People that you know form neighborhood watches and that kind of stuff and everything—they're—they're not—they're not in the business of making a profit. They're actually in the business of defending their country. So sure. I think that there's a difference to be made there. I wouldn't and and I wouldn't mean to uh, try to uh, besmirch the reputation of militias in America based on what Blockwater's done. I, I don't consider yeah, them. No, they're so. certainly, certainly not comparable. Um, yeah. okay. Well, let's, let's get into this. Cause I, I think this is a really important one. Uh, since you have described yourself as, you know, a, an American exceptionalist or a nationalist of, of some, yeah. some scope, uh, you know, I, I have deep concerns about the, the fiscal conditions of this country. And I'm curious, given that our, our national debt is at 28 trillion you know, now it'll be 35 trillion, probably by the end of this year, it'll be, we have a hundred plus trillion in unfunded liabilities. Um, my belief is that your, su your support for empire has ultimately been largely the reason that we are on this path. And I find it curious that neocons, uh, tend to believe that they can continue in this path without ramifications or without losing this single, single global hegemon, which you believe in. So how, how do you balance this with not bankrupting the nation. Okay. Well, I'm a bit different from most neocons in this, that in an ideal society, I want to abolish debt. I, I want to abolish public debt. I want to abolish all that. Uh, everything has to be funded with cash. And I'd set up a sovereign wealth fund, that kind of thing, ideally. Now, recognizing the fact of the matter that, yeah, the United States has a lot of debt. The first thing is, I'd say all debt that's owed to China not going to be recognized, not going to be paid back because we don't recognize the legitimacy of these communist thugs. And after all the damage and murder that they perpetrated with their uh, virus, we, you know, we're, we're not even even, but we're not paying you back. That's what I would say there. So that gets rid of some of the debt. I would, I would initiate, I would basically say anything has to be funded, uh, you know, hundred percent. We can't borrow money anymore. That's one thing that I would do. For example, I don't, I, I, I personally regard the debt crisis as a national security issue, honestly, but I don't regard, you mentioned the empire. I don't consider American empire. I consider America to be basically an economic hegemon on the world level, but they're not an empire. They, if they're an empire, where are their colonies? You know, they, they, because throughout history, empires, what they would do is they would, uh, 
you know, they would go and take colonies and then they would take the resources of those colonies and bring them back to the motherland and stuff. Where is uh, where is America doing that? Where is America, you know, where is America taking resources back? Yeah. Where's America lording over colonies and stealing people's resources? Well, it, it tends to be that they they, uh, you know, any place that we've we've taken over and you know conquered, uh, Iraq would be a good example, would it not? Iraq, well, Iraq's an independent country. Like when you get oil from Iraq, for example, Iraqi companies and the government get that money. That's not like an American territory. I, I see your point. I see your point. Well, like, then, then then I would I would argue that I would argue that our empire is is more modeled in the sense of of a kind of a fascist empire and that that we we use our military to go and invade other nations and then we give the contracts to pull the resources from the ground from these two private companies in America for the most part. Um, so it's kind of a hybrid empire. So in that regard, I would agree with you. It's not your standard empire where you actually uh, you know have a colony, but I, I don't I wouldn't describe it uh, as holistically as you did. Well, I wouldn't describe it as even a hybrid empire in that sense, because, yes, there are private companies that operate in Iraq. You can look at, for example, U.S. oil companies and everything. They're there to be because the domestic oil uh, sector doesn't have the tech know-how. They don't have the the money that the big American companies do. And they go in and the American companies get a share of the profits and the Iraqi people get a share of it. And so if it was an empire, all that money would be basically getting sucked from Iraq and going to America, whereas... In this case, some companies get money and profit for helping out, you know, the uh, basically helping out build up the infrastructure there. So obviously Exxon's got to make money. And then the Iraqi people get a ton of money, whereas before all their money went to fund Saddam's luxurious lifestyle and his Mercedes and stuff. So the Iraqi people have way more ownership now than they did when they were enslaved by Saddam Hussein, for example. So I I don't regard it as... An empire, like these are operations of liberation. They're not operations of imperial conquest. So, well, I mean, we're (laughs) we we now have companies that are basically profiting off of our militarism. Uh, I'm I'm surprised that that doesn't bother you more. It seems to me that if you intend to to see your dream to fruition, it's going to be, you know, almost obligatory that you you become that that you start to take resources from these countries as you conquer them because. Uh, my my belief is a strong one that our our economy is not long for this earth, given how profligate we've been at spending and how unbelievably uh, ridiculous we've been with printing and borrowing. Uh, so, h- how do you how do you how do you actually get? Th- I mean, other than writing off the uh, the debt to China, which would almost certainly be an act of war at this point, uh, what what else would you do to try and keep this from all falling apart? Okay, well, so you, you could call it an act of war. I don't believe that China would nuke America over that. They would lose. They know that America can wipe them out in 45 minutes and they can't do the same. They would just have to cry in the corner about it. I don't I don't recognize... And, and why, not, why not write off all the debt to every nation? I mean, if we're the big bad boy on the block, why not just tell everybody to shove it? <laughs> well, technically, you could do that and probably get away with it. I, I do argue, though, like, for example... Uh, I'm against student loans, for example, but I don't think that you should write off student debt. People borrow the money, they have to pay it back. But I just, I'm against debt in, in, in just on the whole, I don't like usury. But I would say that um, that on the whole, you you do borrow the money, you do have to pay back your creditors, but you can also recognize that borrowing money is dumb. And so for me, I believe that we need to get to a point where Everything that the government does is, you know, it's solvent. It's it, it is 
it's funded on a cash basis, basically through tax money. And you have a sovereign wealth fund in case of an emergency, like a pandemic or something so that you can fund operations for a year, even if you're losing money that time, that's a smart place to be in. All, all, all of this is nice in theory, but we're nowhere near that. We're, we're 28 trillion in debt right now. So what, what is your plan to fix this from here? Yeah. So the plan to fix it from here, if I was in charge, uh, no more money gets paid to China or anything. Uh, we end the welfare state immediately, subsid you know, end social security, all that kind of stuff. Social security is a huge uh, burden there, obviously, make the healthcare system more efficient, get the government out of most aspects of healthcare, uh, and move towards the negative income tax. Now, negative income tax is still going to cost money, but it's not going to cost anywhere near what all this bureaucracy does. And understand that the primary uh, uh, existence of the government is for regulating to prevent externalities, for doing police, for doing firefighting, for basically building roads and stuff, and for the military. None of this huge, vast welfare state type operation. You have negative income tax so that people can spend money the way that they know how they need to spend it. And so... Sure. Um, if they're in a really dire situation, but it's it's a safety net. It's not like, oh, I'm going to buy a, a Lamborghini with negative income taxes. Like, no, if you're on that, it's because you have to, like, you need that. But um, that's that's what I would start with. And you'd see that if you got rid of Social Security, for example, that would actually really change a lot of this discussion because what, what's missed is that, yeah, it's a lot of money that America owes, $28 trillion. That's a hell of a lot of money. You get rid of the China stuff. Let's just say $21, $22 trillion. The thing is, at that point, that's about 100% of your GDP. That's kind of like somebody who makes $100,000 a year owing $100,000. You can say, oh man, $100,000 of debt, that's not good. But can a guy who makes $100,000 a year pay that off? Yes. It would well, just that, that's, fans, that, right? that's a pretty unfair comparison given that $100,000 income and $20 trillion income are, you know, you're talking about GDP versus tax receipts. And, no, and no, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I also do believe that you have to, in the short run, raise taxes that specifically with the purpose of paying off existing debt. Okay. Uh, and I, I, I prefer lower taxes. But well, just yeah. real quick, real quick. Uh, you said you'd get rid of uh, the welfare state. What about yeah. people that have paid into Social Security? I mean, they've they've paid into it for 30, 40 years. Uh, they're they're entering retirement. And, and granted, I am actually with you on this. I think oh. that we do need to get away from the welfare state. But I'm saying for the people that have paid in, I think it's it's almost like breaking contract that no, like, I, a really legitimate contract that they actually paid their half of. Yeah, you you can make the point like you can make a moral argument that since FDR, who I disagree with, but that since FDR with the New Deal, that the American social contract was updated with an understanding that you knew that you'd have money set uh, not set aside, but that you'd have money coming to you if you retired with nothing. What I think we need to get to a point is I would require personal finance to be taught in education, like in high school, grade nine, grade 10, grade 11, grade 12, you have to take it. And I would say, no, you get 50%, you get to graduate. No, you actually have to get 70% in that to even be allowed to graduate high school in all those four classes. If you don't get 70%, you have to take it again. And, and because I think that personal finance is more important than learning math or learning English or, oh, I don't care if Johnny 10th grade knows his Shakespeare, that's probably not going to do him very much unless he wants to be like an English professor, but then he can research that on his own. But knowing how to manage money, I do care that Johnny 10th grade knows how to do that. And so uh, I believe that everybody should have the approach where we all expect that Social Security won't be there for us. But I understand that officially speaking, it would be unfair to tell people 
hey, look, you know, we paid into this our whole lives. Now, there is an ex- there is a misconception around it that I think we need to clear up, though, which is that with Social Security in America, with the Canadian Pension Plan in Canada, it's not set aside with a bank account with your name on it where you get that money when you retire. It's a pay-as-you-go system. So that yeah. the, once that money's gone out each month, uh, there's like it, 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 it's a pay-as-you-go system. And so you're not actually technically owed anything so if the congress decided that they were going to get rid of that uh you can make a moral argument that you had that expectation that it would be there but it's not like they just took your bank account or your savings account or your pension account or something where they had all this money that you paid into for 30 years no that money when you pay into it it actually goes to people that are on that system right now it doesn't go into a vault with your name on it and so in that sense legally speaking you could totally do it oh, what you could how, how this works is that how I would do it is I would grandfather people out. I'd say if you're 10 yeah. years away from retirement, you get 80% of what you were expected for until you're, di- until you're dead. Yeah, and do if a you're, phase out. I got it. You do a phase out. But if you're 18 or 25, you're at zero. Like you yeah. need to understand that when you retire, you got to fund that on your own, right? And yeah, we right. need to get to that system. And for people down the road, even, even 100 years down the road, for whatever reason, they got nothing when they retire. Well, now they're on the negative income tax because we're not just going to let people die in the streets. But we need to get away from this stupid social security. And this is true in Canada too, because it's a similar percentage of GDP in Canada and the U S and we simply can't afford this shit. So I I would, I would make the same argument for the, uh, the military state, but uh, regardless, uh, I I wanted to to pivot to, you know, you, you and Keith obviously talked a hell of a lot more about um, the wars yeah, and, and and you pushed back against kind of our ideology, stating that that you thought that it would lead to all sorts of hypothetical violence and 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 unknowable lost lives. But in from our vantage point, there are hundreds of thousands of children that have been torn, you know, limb from limb, incinerated, starved, diseased uh, from our behavior. And I'm curious, do you do you lose any sleep over that? Does it bother you at all? Do you think that it's all because you have the best interests for their nation in mind? It's all excused because from my vantage point, it simply isn't. Well, I think we need to get into a bit of specifics there. So you mentioned hundreds of thousands of people. So are you talking like since America was formed? Because America has actually killed millions of people in wars since 1776. But no, I'm, I'm speaking strictly about the Middle East over the past 20 years or 30 well, hundreds of thousands is a gross overstatement. In Iraq, for example, about 20,000 people were uh, killed as a result of the actual Western coalition action that was there. They, they died. And all, most of that was either enemy combatants or collateral damage. Now, the hundreds of thousands that gets touted out when people talk about how 200,000 people died in the Iraq war, what they miss is that the vast majority of those people were killed as a result of the Iranian-sponsored insurgency. And so I'm I'm obviously against Iran. I've said it before that my main criticism of Bush is that he didn't invade Iran in 2003 because they wouldn't have been able to meddle in, in Iraq if the Ayatollah regime had been toppled. So uh, for me, in terms of losing sleep over it, what I lose sleep over is how we're not doing anything about Syria right now, how we're going to give up on Afghanistan, how all these people basically died for nothing because Obama and Trump uh, basically could not stay the course. That's what I lose sleep over. Real, real quick, you you spoke you spoke pretty highly of of Saudi Arabia, and yeah. and Keith, in my view, made a huge mistake not bringing up Yemen. Are you familiar with with what's occurring in Yemen? 
Yeah, so Iran's uh, sponsored a Houthi rebellion against the uh, legitimate government of uh, Hadi there that has brought the country into absolute turmoil. And what Saudi Arabia is doing is uh, trying to repel the uh, the Houthi uh, scourge. So by, by starving Saudi by starving children, I mean that that's the nation that you're supporting. Saudi Arabia, I, I need a citation that Saudi Arabia is specifically trying to starve kids. No, they're targeting the Houthis. Now, are they the most accurate? No, I've got a lot of criticisms with Saudi Arabia's military strategy because they don't really 100% know what they're doing. They have really expensive equipment, but the West has not done anywhere near enough to actually train them on how to use this shit properly. I've seen video of them where they bring out tanks and stuff, and then the tanks get blown up by a $10,000 RPG from the Houthis. And you're like, why the hell wasn't that thing guarded with infantry and whatnot and all this kind of stuff? Like, they just, they're not, they don't have the experience that the U.S. military has, for example, or the Canadian military. And I wish that we could have done more to train them properly. Uh, They also don't always hit the right target 100% of the time. But in terms of what they're doing, I mean, there's never been a war that didn't, have collateral damage collateral damage happens it doesn't mean you don't do the war but you do everything possible to minimize collateral damage it's why i prefer drones to carpet bombing for example but but why but why do you support war at all given that that it is inevitable that children will be lit on fire like it's it's hard for me to understand how someone can have such moral certitude that they can overlook the loss of lives of innocent kids I don't understand it. I'll never understand it, to be honest. But I would like to understand, at least from your vantage point, okay. how how you can how you can feel okay supporting Saudi Arabia, who is embargoing and blowing up aid shipments to these people and having their kids die just because they can't get any fucking food. And I mean, it's it's atrocious and it's tragic. If any other country was doing it, we would be invading Saudi Arabia on the on the behalf of the Yemeni people. If you talk about you know, doing things for for really altruistic type purposes. It's simply not that. I mean, these are these are helpless. It's like the poorest nation in the Middle East, and we are we are, the American people are supporting their destruction. It's tragic. Well, Iran, it, it, the United States people aren't supporting Iran. Iran is what made Yemen as as shitty as it is right now. They had a a, a stable government for the most part under Hadi. Uh, they weren't starving. They weren't being burned or anything until Iran did what they did. And this seems like victim blaming to now go after the people that are trying to restore order there. It's Saudi Arabia did not ask for Iran to come I, I in. Am, I am blaming up. the people that are starving children, man. Like so if, you're that's, if that's victim blaming, I'm blaming whoever the fuck's involved. I don't want yeah, ch- children to starve. It's not just Iran, man. Come on. It's well, being Saudi embargoed Arabia. by Saudi Arabia with America's support. You can't you can't put it all. You can't have like good team, bad team. There are fucking this is a proxy war and there are innocent children dying because of your support. I'm sorry, well, but innocent, that's not OK. Innocent kids died in Vietnam, too. Does that mean that's that America fucked up? Does that mean that America shouldn't have helped South Vietnam repel the Soviet invasion? I mean, like... No, I wouldn't have. So you would have let the world fall to communism, though? Because Vietnam, because of Vietnam, the entire world would have fallen to communism? Well, if you took that stance everywhere, you wouldn't have helped the the, the Contras in Nicaragua. You wouldn't have helped uh, no. uh, Pinochet in Chile. You wouldn't have no. helped... So you would have let the world fall to communism. Okay. Well, so. is it the world? I mean, you still have the United States. You still have every other nation that believes in, you know, Western free ideology that would have defended themselves. Do you do you honestly believe that Vietnam and 
<laughs> Nicaragua leads to everywhere being communist? Well, after Nicaragua, then they go to Guatemala and so on and so forth. It's a domino effect, right? That's what Truman warned about in the early days of the Cold yeah, War. But, and but, moreover, pe but people are responsible for defending their own freedoms. I, I think it's it's extraordinarily paternalistic and completely psychotically utopic to believe that America can prevent all evils across the globe. You're going to bankrupt this country if you continue on this path. I assure you of that. There is no there is no amount of fiscal sanity that you can apply to our our, our budget at home. And, you know, removing Social Security, if you're going to try and police the entire world forever and mold it into your image, it's simply unsustainable. You will you will absolutely bankrupt this country if you continue on this path. I have no doubt in my mind. The, the U.S. is the, the most productive economy in world history. And moreover, I, I think that there are a lot of economic reforms that you can make to, to reduce the debt that exists on the domestic front. However, there's never been any sort of empire, historically speaking, or any, I don't consider America an empire, but if we just say America is an empire, America would then be the first empire in history that said, yes, other nations throughout the world and throughout history would have killed to be in our position, but we're voluntarily going to give up our superpower hegemon status that anybody else would kill and envy over uh, and, and do anything to be us because it costs a little bit of money, bro. I just, I, I don't regard that as it a ain't, It ain't a little bit, brother. It ain't a little bit. That's such a such an understatement. It's, it's unbelievable. percent of the economy, right? It's, so. it's what? Two and a half percent of GDP gets spent on the military. Most of that is on maintenance, not if you, even if on you don't in, if you don't include all of the the knock on effects. If you don't include the the care for the troops that come home missing limbs. I mean, uh, honestly, I, I don't understand why any neocon exists that isn't enlisted. So I would like to ask oh. you that. When, when, I'm, when am I joining the military, though? I've done two videos on this. So what I'll say is, if you go and check out my video, when are you joining the military, though? I did an updated version, which is a lot shorter. Uh, it's only like uh, less than 10 minutes long. The old one was like 20 minutes and had bad audio quality. I go over all of that. But basically, I'll just give you a quick one right here. If I was in the military, you'd say I was a war criminal. If I'm not in the military, you'll say I'm a coward. So I don't, I'm not going to join. No, I, I'm not calling you a coward. I'm saying that you're supporting things that you're not willing to put risk your life for. You know, whether whether or not that makes you a coward, that's your that's your own cross to bear. I don't know. But I think that it's very odd that these people that believe as you do, that you have moral superiority and you have the right to implement your will across the fucking planet, that you should actually risk something to do that. And it's not enough to just say, oh, well, I'm going to pay taxes and I, you know, <laughs> so now all these young poor kids get to go die in the Middle East for my belief system. I think that it, it is morally incumbent upon you who talks about moral degeneracy to actually risk something and go do it yourself. And I'm not saying that you have to do that. I'm saying that you might want to reflect on the fact that your belief system damaged people. It, I mean, so, there, are, there, are, there are American troops that are killing themselves all day, every day because of the tragedies that they had to participate in based off of your policies. It's heartbreaking. These are fucking good people, man. And they die at their own hand following with your line of reasoning and your line of alleged morality. And I think it's really, really evil for neocons to sit there on the sideline and say, I, I think that we are the right and, and the good. And I will, I will allow anyone that's not me to go die on behalf of my belief system. And I think it's really tragic. So, so how does me joining either the Canadian army right now or the American army in say five or 10 years, how does me doing that 
automatically mean that we're going to liberate North Korea. Like, obviously, I'm here to change the political culture. If the political culture is changed so that no matter who wins, we're going to have an interventionist foreign policy, I've said before, then I would at that point enlist in the military. But we need, I need to be here on media, on social media, because I can do more here. Because even the best soldier in the world, the best soldier in the world in America is powerless if Trump pulls them out of Syria. So we need to change the political culture first. Do, do you care that the majority of troops want to end the wars? That's not true. No, no, no. The, the military are the most hawkish people. Like average soldiers are way more hawkish than typical foreign policy hawks. Like, well, I can I, mean, I can send you the polls after we finish here, but it, it is the majority of troops that want to get out of the Middle East. And I, I just I think that it's really odd when people who are so militaristic, so supportive of imperialist forces or whatever you want to call it, um, that you don't take into consideration the the unbelievable emotional and mental toll that it puts on these foot soldiers that go out there and risk everything off your belief system. I want to bring them home. I want to have a sustainable nation, if you want to call it that, or just a fucking landmass with people that have similar ideology to me. Um, but I, I am sick of seeing these people die and I'm sick of seeing them come back and have PTSD and shake and not be able to sleep and be homeless. And it's like, all of this is a product of the belief system that you hold and you do it with an air of moral superiority, which I simply cannot wrap my head around. These people so, are right. these people are falling apart because of the things that you have supported. And, and there's children starving because of the things that you've supported and you still have certitude. I just hope you reflect a little bit, just a little bit on on the human cost to the belief system that you propagate. So, Clint, you talked about earlier how somebody who gets addicted to drugs has the liberty to make that choice. Do you believe that the people who enlisted in the military or became officers in the military, did they make a voluntary economic decision that they were going yes. to be paid? So then should they be paid to sit around and do nothing? Like, they knew what they were getting into. They're the toughest people in the world. I mean... You well, well they start out that way and then they come then they come back as alcoholics with with trembling hands and fucking revolvers in them so for or their own for their McCain. own lives or they What's come that? back to McCain and be become senators and rich so yeah and propagate more wars yes you're right sometimes that does happen um but i i, I wouldn't say that that I just wish, i wish more wars right so <laughs> that's incredible it's just incredible it's incredible that you can you can think more wars that you're literally happy and wishing for more death, whether you think it's just or not. Well, you're, it's death. No matter what, I'd rather start them on our terms over there than on their terms over here, right? So, how many times have we been invaded, man? Uh, well, if you didn't take out the Soviet Union, for example, and bankrupt them and counter them in all those proxy wars, they would have invaded America, guaranteed. Like you sincerely said before, it. You said before Clint, that you would still have the Western world and they could defend themselves even if the rest of the world fell to communism. I would argue that if almost all the world was the Soviet Union and you just had America and France and the UK defending themselves, basically, the Soviets would then win that war. Whereas if you're on their border and you're countering them everywhere they try to gain ground, you have the advantage. And so I want to win. I don't want to wait for them to come over here I want to be a lion. I want to be a hawk. I want to deal with them before it gets that bad. I want to prevent the emergence of rivals, not just deal with them once they're overpowered, you know? So Yeah, I, I understand your perspective. I, I just I just can't get past how easily you get past the loss of human life of your fellow Americans, or if you're going to become an American one day, your fellow Americans. I mean, I'm friends with vets. I know these people 
well. And, so am I. So am and, I. And, 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 and do, you, do you know any of them that have come back fucked up? I really need to know this. I, I know people that are in the military. I know people that have served in the military. One of my friends, for example, Henry was in the military. Uh, he runs American Madhouse. Uh, he's pretty hawkish dude, for example. Do, he's do you know any that have come back fucked up? Uh, not personally. However, okay. you know what you're getting into when you sign up for the job. It's like becoming like a lumberjack or something. And then, you know, you got to win in a thousand chance that you might lose your arm or something. Well, you get it ain't, paid. It ain't one in a thousand, brother. You get paid. You get paid for what you're doing. And moreover, you don't necessarily have to even go into combat. You can choose your your field, your specialty, that kind of thing. It's it's an economic arrangement at the end of the day. A lot of people yeah. actually you, join. But you're but you're praying, you're praying on you're praying on the most uneducated, the and poorest amongst the amongst our population, because those are the people that go over there and risk their lives off your ideology. And they come so, back and they kill themselves oftentimes. Are, are many, you, many a day. Are you saying that we should have like some socialist welfare state or something? Because I believe in like I believe in they can uh, have a job and not be killing fucking people overseas, dude. Could, you and I do it. McDonald's. Then they could work at McDonald's. Why not work at McDonald's then if you're poor? Like I, you, you, yeah, they of join course. the military, right? Because, you don't because they're offered better benefits with the military, and it sounds exciting. I'm not. I'm not saying. That's an economic arrangement. That's a voluntary an, economic arrangement. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying they're slaves. I'm saying it's okay. tragic that they come back and they take their own lives because of the shit they've done over there. And you, you don't seem to have any consideration for that. Have you considered it at all? Well, my job is somebody here who talks about international relations, foreign policy, the national interest, and everything is to advocate for the action that will preserve and propagate the West and not result in us being buried by the enemies. So they're, of so they're cannon fodder. They're, you're, you're willing to, to watch them die and not talk about it because it doesn't go along with your mission statement. So when Russia or China invade America down the road, no U.S. soldiers are going to die in that? Like the war happened. The war of defense is totally different, man. Come on. You know I'm not... The morality is different. You can say that America would be more justified morally once they come over here. I would argue way more people, though, die when we wait for them to start the war on their terms than right now, where a few thousand people die here, a few thousand people die there that knew what they were signing up for and everything. My point is, I don't believe in waiting for a threat to actually invade you. I believe in preemptive action to nip them in the bud and minimize suffering in the long run. That's Oftentimes my that... Oftentimes that preemptive action creates the very terrorists that you're trying to fight. So I, I, I think that citation. what's that? I, I need a citation on that. Just a, one example. One example of blowback. Well, blowback, we can talk about blowback. Blowback's a meme. Like if you want to talk about the Mujahideen, for example, the Mujahideen was a, was an ally. And yet some people from the Mujahideen went into Pakistan and Pakistan basically initiated the Taliban and then some of those people down the road helped Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda obviously killed 3,000 Americans. My question so, for you, Flint, would be, who's a bigger threat in the 1980s, though? Is it the USSR that has the ability to kill 150 million Americans in 30 minutes? Or is it 20 years down the road, me, a few thousand Americans die? Which is a bigger threat to be dealt with by any means necessary? What, what an unbelievable brushing over of the th maybe 3,000 Americans die. I mean... It, you have you have a very callous view of the loss of life. I just need to no, say that bluntly. You really but you do. Know, 
you would have risked the nuclear war that would have resulted in a million 9-11s, right? Because you wouldn't have bankrupted the USSR as soon as possible. You would have let them do their own thing. And then maybe a nuclear war breaks out, even by accident, if they survive another 20 years, right? So a 1% oh. chance of a nuclear war that kills half of America is better than a hundred percent chance of blowback that kills 3000 Americans. It's just as likely that your interventionist policies could, could lead to a nuclear war. So, so please don't talk about like, Oh, if, if we went along oh. with your plan, Clint, then we would have had a nuclear war. Your plans are just as likely to lead to all out war and world war three. If anything, if anything, non-interventionism is far, far superior. If you actually care about not getting nuked. So I don't understand this perspective. Not true, because even if a nuclear war broke out with my policies, it would be one that America would win. Whereas when the war starts on your turn, no one wins a nuclear war, my friend. That's not true. Did America win against Japan? America won against Japan. Do you think that a nuclear a nuclear war amongst nuclear nations is winnable? If China has three hundred and America has eight thousand, yeah, America would win right now. Absolutely. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call that an L either way because the fucking world is destroyed, man. Like no. It, no. No, it's not, because a lot of those wouldn't even get off the ground on their end. Some of them would get shot down. Some of them would get through. That's true. The America would lose a few assets. That's absolutely true. It would be tragic. However, it's so callous how you talk about this shit, dude. America would be able to wipe out Chinese society in 45 minutes. They, it wouldn't be close. America would win. So I, I don't get it. So Well, I, it's not a matter. It's, okay. Win. Sure. Win. If you don't consider the millions and millions, and in China's case, billions of lost lives, I, it's just a very callous perspective. You really, you really look at the world and you don't consider the actual human beings on the ground. And I just, I really hope that if anything I get across to you tonight is that you really consider the actual people that are affected by your policy advocacy. Because no, I do. that's why I support intervention, because the people of Iraq and the people of Afghanistan were living in slavery and now they have a chance at freedom. So. OK, and we won. That was a neocon win. I know people like to say, oh, but you guys lost Iraq. We won Iraq. Saddam's dead. Ask him how he's doing. Look at Afghanistan. We would have completely won that, too, if it weren't for Obama and then later Trump and now Biden. So. You described the kids at, at Waco as collateral damage. I, I'd like to, to go back to that briefly. Yeah. Um, first off, it was over 30 children that were burnt to death. They were Americans. They were innocent. They were kids. How is it, how is it that you can support a state that would do that to somebody? Well, the cult started the fire, right? Like the cult that was there started the fire. Okay. That America, America it's, it's not true, but okay, continue. Okay, well, America can't tolerate these kinds of cults that have their kids and, and, and whatnot, and oftentimes women as hostages. That's unacceptable. People and left people left right beforehand. So how can you say that they were hostages? They were they were they were indoctrinated and brainwashed, and oftentimes in the case of the kids, not allowed to leave. And the the cult had a death wish and they acted upon that. I don't see how we can how we can tolerate death cults. Is that something you should have the liberty to what? do? I don't believe so. How, how did they have a death cult? I mean, uh, how do you describe it as a death cult when they were they were sieged for fucking like forty five days and then lit on fire? I, how, how is it that they had the death cult and the the military that you support isn't the death cult? Well, because the American military is legitimate and in that case was enforcing uh, laws and order, and they were not. Like, I mean, I, I it's like at a fundamental level. The, it, to draw an equivalency between a death cult 
and the United States government is honestly insane. So I think it's insane to describe 30 Americans lit on fire by their government as collateral damage. Uh, so, they, they all started the fire, so it's not true. Well, send me a citation on that because everything I've seen okay. about it is that the cult was the one that resulted in that kind of loss of life. But like, let's say that um, in, in terms of enforcing the law, some innocent people get killed. If you don't enforce the law, then there's no law anywhere now because you know that sets bad precedent. And now a lot more people die because you've just set the precedent that it's okay to do what they did, right? And we can't tolerate that. And that needs to be put down. Well, mission accomplished, buddy. 30 kids lit on fire. But you were making the same argument about Yemen, about how kids die in this operation. It's like, yeah, but Iran started the war. It's the same thing about with uh, America. Like when, for example, Japan attacked the United States and the U.S. Uh, nuked Hiroshima and Nagasaki, kids were literally vaporized. In yep. That. Fucking awful. So are you, do you believe that America should have retaliated for Pearl Harbor or just said, well, the kids would die if we did that? Well, I wouldn't have embargoed Japan to begin with, so I sincerely doubt that we ended up in that position. But had we, had we been attacked and it had been unprovoked, certainly it deserves a response. But I do not believe in nuking civilian populations largely. And I think it's unbelievably fucking despicable to right. advocate for that. Wait, no, no, but... Are we talking about World War II or are we talking because I don't advocate for nuclear war anywhere outside of North Korea. I just want to be clear about that. North Korea is the only case that I believe that it actually would result in a nuclear uh, confrontation. I believe that you can bankrupt Russia with oil and that you can bankrupt China by cutting them off on trade. I, I'm not advocating for a nuclear war with Russia. You, but you just, at, you just asked me about Japan. Okay, but you are so you're arguing that Hiroshima and Nagasaki shouldn't have been nuked. We should have invaded and had a million people die. The mainland. Well, they, they offered to concede prior. So I, I don't understand this argument at all that it was necessary, much less that there was fucking days in between the two nukes that you had to send the message with the second one. I think it's it, if you want to argue that there could have been a nuke used to prevent a land invasion, if you want to go down that line of historical thought, which I actually disagree with, but I'll just play this game. I do not see any justification for the second nuke. And I heard you during the podcast uh, last week say that you would have you would have probably nuked them more. Did I hear that right? Well, America didn't have the means to do it. The America did not have the means. To, they only had two I, nukes available. I, I understand. I'm asking what you would have done. Yeah, so Japan didn't know that America only had two nuclear devices at the ready at that time. It is a historical fact that after the nuclear bombing of Nagasaki, the second nuclear attack, that the military leadership around the emperor was still split on if they should surrender or not after two nukes. And of course, they they did come to the conclusion to surrender and they thought America didn't have more. And they were still unsure as to whether they should surrender to America. So this idea that, oh, they couldn't wait to surrender and, and, and that Hiroshima and Nagasaki weren't necessary. No, they were straight up. The consensus in the military before Hiroshima was if they invade, they're going to deal with a hedgehog where all the women and children are going to sacrifice themselves against the Americans and we're going to survive on. And then after Hiroshima, they were still pretty steadfast on that. And then after Nagasaki, they realized America might have hundreds of these things or something. And then at that point, half of the, the, the leadership was still, no, we have honor. We have to keep fighting on. And then they eventually came around the conclusion to surrender. This is just, it's fake news, honestly, to say that they wanted to surrender beforehand. That's a Noam Chomsky uh, fake news talking point. So Okay. 
Well, I, I would just like to, to I guess, end with, uh, I think that it's tragic when you nuke largely civilian territories, no matter the state of the war. I think it's fucking evil. I think it's really tragic when you overlook the fact that we've embargoed multiple Middle Eastern countries and caused the starvation of children to try and get the people to revolt against their leadership, which is what you continue to advocate for today in Yemen. And there are children starving. And it's just not okay, man. Not in Yemen. The, the people that overthrew Hadi were Iranian Houthis. That wasn't Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia supported Hadi. This okay. idea that Saudi Arabia I'm is embargoing them right now. So no, no, no. that's because Hadi's not in charge anymore. The Houthis took over. That's a different regime. Okay. I mean, who, who who is who is embargoing Yemen right now, though? Well, at, at the moment, Yemen, as as we would think of it, as Yemen is obviously in a civil war. But the regime uh, uh, with the Houthis and whatnot that Iran's got uh, that they've taken over basically. Uh, they they are not a legitimate state. They're an enemy. They're the ones who started it, and they need to be destroyed. And and okay. I well, my, my point is is when you describe someone as an enemy, and then you allow children to starve in mass because well, they are the not, enemy. It's not you don't have the moral high ground when children are starving based off of policies that you support. Point blank, there are children, tens of thousands, dying right now because of policies you support, and no, it's just not, not okay. Iran. No, but Iran started the war. That's okay. So Kids are on Iran's uh, conscious. They're not on mine. Okay. Because well, then what about what about America with Iraq when they embargoed them and they had kids dying from starvation? Then is that okay? I, I was against that. I think that America should have invaded Iraq uh, way before that embargo. So we did it. We found one thing that you don't support when it comes to militarism. That's tremendous. I, well, that's I, not militarism. Sanctions are not militarism. I oppose sanctions in almost every case because they make war seem like, oh, we did something. We don't need to do war anymore. It's like, no. You oppose sanctions because it's not enough? Well, no, it's counterproductive. You hurt the people on the ground. You, you hurt the regime last. So like on Iran, we're sanctioning wow. Iran. It's like, how is that going to stop them getting nukes? The, the people... Okay. Suffer. I support war with Iran. I, I, I hate sanctions because it's like playing a video game and you level up in the video game. I love video games, but you didn't actually really accomplish anything unless you're like a professional streamer. It gives you a false sense of accomplishment. Likewise, sanctions make politicians feel like, oh, we did something good and they can virtue signal about it because they don't have like people that are going to blame them for a death toll or something. Whereas all that you're doing is prolonging an inevitable war. Likewise with Hitler and so on and so forth. It's like, which actually results in way more people dying because now they're stronger once the war starts. And, I just, and I just want to note that in your entire opposition to embargoes or, you know, trade sanctions, you didn't once mention the death of the kids there as the reason no, that you're opposed to it. On the ground. No, I straight up said that sanctions hurt the people on the ground first and the regime last. Obviously included in that is oftentimes, sometimes kids will starve. Okay. That, that, that happened in Iraq. That happened. Now it's overplayed the extent to which it happened in the United States or in Iraq rather between the wars. But it's very clear. Like I'm not a fan of George H.W. Bush, for example. I regard him as weak and feckless. He didn't finish the job. It took his son to finish the job, for example. That who, should have happened in 1991. In, in your lifetime, who was the best president? I'm just curious. Oh, uh, George W. Bush. Okay. What about you? What, who would you say? Fuck, dude. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Maybe Trump. He didn't start any new wars, so <laughs> I don't well, know. 
What do you think about his uh, killing of uh, Soleimani, for example, or his tough talk on Iran? Do, do you... Yeah, no, no. He he did he did a bunch of shit that I hated. I'm just saying he didn't start any uh, major new wars, but he he certainly continued with them. Uh, I think I think maybe Reagan, because in the, his first year of presidency, at least I've read this. I don't know if it's true, but allegedly in his first year of presidency, he refused to learn how to use the nuclear football because he said that he would never retaliate with nukes. And I think that's the most noble thing I've ever heard any president say. You would strongly disagree with that. I have no doubt. Um, but I think that there there needs to be a more um, humane outlook when it comes to militarism and, and coexisting on this planet with people. And I'm not trying to be all hippy dippy, but I really do believe that that your perspective is one that that leads to uh, far far more death and destruction than is necessary to to survive together and and i i really i really do hope that that someday you reflect on the amount of casualties that that are left in your wake uh, or your ideological wake because it's 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 tragic and well, i and i i really hope you meet some soldiers that have ptsd and understand the the true human you know ramifications of the stuff that you support Point to the death toll. Say, for example, about twenty thousand Iraqis, people in Iraq, were were killed as a result of Western coalition forces. Most of that was collateral damage. You can look at that and say, "Well, those people are in your conscious," without realizing that if we let Saddam stay in power for another twenty years, dude killed a million and a half people, he would have killed fifteen times as many people. So it's same with uh, nuking Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, a couple hundred thousand Japanese people died. But now you just saved a million American lives. It's like instead of saying, look at those dead people, you can say, look at all these people that are alive now that would have been butchered had you not done what you did. That's how I look at it. So I understand, you want I understand that's how you look at it. But those those are hypothetical deaths versus real ones. Like okay. the, these people had names. They had parents. They're dead. They're dead right now. You know, and there and, are people and, alive right now that have names that would have been killed by Saddam Hussein. How you do don't, you don't and you can't know that. I can and, know. That but I do know the people that are dead because of your belief system. So, you know, you can decide hypothetical versus actually dead. I'm going to so side with the dead people. I can extrapolate based on his behavior of starting wars for oil, gassing his own people, et cetera, that he probably would have he wouldn't have become a nice Democrat in 2004. He would I would hope not. I hate Democrats. But anyways. I mean, Democrat in the sense of uh, I'm small, kidding. I'm kidding. I, I, I know I, I support the Republicans. But um, in, in general, I would say on, on this whole matter uh, that uh, when we're talking about warfare and everything, I would say you mentioned Reagan, for example. And it was actually up until 1983. It wasn't until you saw the film the day after that he changed his mind about nuclear weapons because before that he kind of considered them kind of like a conventional thing. He didn't know that much about them. And afterwards he got like kind of scared and he started actually practicing with the uh, football and everything. I am of the view, like I like Ronald Reagan, but he was an actor and I'm of the view that if you don't have the stomach to know that you would retaliate if you were attacked, that you, you can do literally any other job. You could be uh, an athlete. You could be an architect. You could be anything. Just don't run for president if you're going to do what, say, Elizabeth Warren did, where she said that she would not uh, do a first strike with nukes. She said that publicly. And my view is, if you say that publicly, that signals to your enemies that you probably also wouldn't retaliate if they attacked you first. So that makes a nuclear war more likely because it means you don't have the heart. And so my view is, even if you personally don't have the heart to use nukes, and I personally believe that a lot of American presidents wouldn't have actually done it. They, they wouldn't have actually had the heart to do it. But they didn't tell the enemy that. They didn't tell the world that because you want to project strength so that you don't have to actually retaliate with nukes or be in that position. So for under, me, under mutually say, assured destruction, you have to. 
let's say like I, I, I could never in a million years use a nuclear weapon, but I know I'm about to be the leader of a country. I would straight up say, oh, if you do anything to us, we'll nuke you, bro. It, because that way you don't have to uh, be in that situation. Right, you have to bluff it. I, I understand the, the game theory behind that, but uh, I, I struggle to imagine you struggling with with using nukes uh, are you are you implying that you would you would have a hard time doing it yourself uh well no no if, if you attack <laughs> me with nukes if you attack me with nukes you're getting retaliated against okay. right that's, that's but, but i mean first strike first strike nukes uh against north korea i've advocated for that you can check out my debate with uh, dylan burns for example we had about a two-hour debate on uh first strike against north korea so. how do you how do you free the enslaved that you allegedly care about in North Korea by turning them into glass. Well, it's a bit late for that. It's about saving ourselves. They're building up thousands of nukes over the next 30 years to use against us. So all the of the enslaved there are simple time, collateral damage to you? The time for humanitarian intervention has long passed, dude. Wow. Like, you're not liberating North Korea. They've had a policy on the books for a long time. The second the Americans cross the parallel, they execute all the people in the concentration camps. You're not liberating anybody. This is about saving ourselves, honestly. So, okay. uh, like, and, and again, I would have said to Bill Clinton, go in there, don't nuke them, and liberate the country. Can you say that now when they got 100 nukes? No, that's going to be a nuclear war, and people are going to die. But if you ask me, would I rather live in North Korea my whole life and live in terror or be starved to death, all this kind of stuff, or dying a nuclear bomb uh i take the nuclear bomb personally so that's just me so well it, it ain't just you it's actually a couple million people that aren't you that you're advocating for the complete annihilation of but right, but they don't have the right to threaten us with nuclear weapons it's not going to be tolerated and then and, and this nuclear blackmail that they're conducting that they're going to conduct i know what they're up to they're building up a magic number of nukes when they feel confident that they can say to america We'll nuke you unless you take your stuff out of South Korea, and we're going to take South Korea now. And even if John Bolton's president then, what would John Bolton say? Well, you know, I would have bombed these guys back in the day, but I'm not going to lose all my cities to save South Korea. And then they cuck America, and America goes from being a world superpower to basically being nothing. And immediately NATO falls apart because people realize that American defense doesn't mean anything. And now Russia, China, North Korea basically have all of Eurasia. And then 30 years down the road when they come for America – You've got one lonely, irrelevant country fighting off against the world. It's probably not going to work out too well. So for me, uh, it's very clear. If you're going to pursue uh, nuclear weapons, um, that you're you're going to be dealt with. And, and specifically in the case of North Korea, it's not just, oh, it's like a show of force or whatever. Guaranteed any invasion at this point necessitates them using nukes. I'd rather take their shit out before they use it. It's In a nuclear war, you're better off to fire first than be hit. Um, that's just a fact. And anybody well, that's seriously studied nuclear strategy is aware of that. So Dylan Burns had, and even though that's what he does is foreign policy as a job, but you know, but, but this, this entire attitude of, of treating countries that are pursuing nukes as, you know, basically anytime that you go and you topple some nation that's pursuing nukes, you, all you do is speed up the other nations that were kind of on the fence, but also quote unquote, our enemies by your worldview. Um, it, it drives them all to try and seek out nukes. So this entire mentality, do you not see it as leading Wait, to further, further nuclearization amongst uh, these no. alleged enemy? The only other one that you could point to right now is Iran, but they were trying to get nukes for decades, honestly. Like at least 20 years they've been on the record 
about their nuclear ambitions. So you they, honestly believe if they were trying to, I mean, nuclear ambitions, but they've always claimed it was for power. If they were trying to get nukes, they claimed it was for power to know, us. Hold but on, hold on, hold on. If they, yeah. if they were, if they were claiming that they were pursuing nukes, do you honestly think after decades that they wouldn't have them? Well, they're poor and they had to keep it under the radar. And it takes a long time for a country to build up nuclear weapons that doesn't have it yet because they can't do breeding. They can't do any of this sort of stuff with existing materials. They have to do it all from scratch. And Do you think Iran's more poor than, nu than North Korea? The difference is that Iran still is like integrated in the world economy until recent sanctions and stuff. With North Korea... They had nothing to lose. They were always a pariah state and they had no hopes of going into, you know, the, the international community. They, for them, the nukes were a way to get money because they can do uh, negotiations and bargaining in exchange for getting stuff and then lie about it. And they admitted to it. Whereas with Iran, Iran was always more integrated in the world economy. So for them, they had to be a bit more on the hush hush about it. And it takes a lot longer. And under the terms of the deal, for example, the JCPOA, they had a 20-year timeline that was permitted for them, uh, whereas obviously it pulled out, uh, you know, Trump pulled out. And I, I, I like that. I mean, it's funny how you said that you don't support what Trump did with Soleimani and stuff. I regard that as one of the areas that I agreed with Trump on. I mean, he did some things that I liked, but uh, on the whole, I don't really like Trump. Now, I'm not a never Trump. I'm not like the most of the neocons that just write him off. I'm like, well, no, I want to give him credit where it's due so that he does more things that I like. But otherwise, he's got no incentive to try to appeal to my side if we just say, oh, you're you're irredeemable. It's like, no, he was redeemable. If he if he did a war with Iran, I would have supported him. So I said before well, his, I would have gone on the train. So his his budgetary nonsense is almost certainly going to put a hitch in your giddy up when it comes to continuing the. Uh, militaristic hegemonic power that you advocate for but um anyways brother it's been two hours and yeah uh, hours, so. i just wanted to say kevin i i do appreciate the time i I, re I genuinely from my heart hope that you you talk with some veterans that have participated in these wars and and haven't come back the same and and i know that you've already written off the fact that they they agreed to do it and i'm not saying that they're slaves and i'm not saying that they're necessarily victims they did make that choice but but the human toll that this takes on people that that are your countrymen um, or will be one day is really tragic. And, and I, I know many of these people, I know some that have lost their lives to their own hand. And, and I, I really hope that at some point in your life um, you go out of your way if necessary to meet some of these people and understand the human toll that comes from these wars that you advocate for. Cause it's not, it's not nearly as, as clean as, uh, as it seems to be portrayed when you're talking about it. I would say to you, I would just say I would hope at some point you would speak to people that have lived under North Korea, lived under Saddam, new family that were murdered by Gaddafi, that sort of thing. Anybody who's who's basically had an experience of oppression under tyranny. That's what that's what I would say I would advise you to do. I have most of most of them were embargoed by America, you know, like Cubans, for instance. Um, and also, if I were to talk to any North Koreans, I can advise them that if uh, Kevin Kessley was in charge, their entire families that are still stuck in fucking camps would be nuked. <laughs> but anyways, well, I, I, sorry, I really didn't mean to take a dunk, but it's just true, dude. It's crazy. Yeah, so that again, I think it's very clear that non-interventionism not only surrenders the world to and gives up all the gains of everybody that's fought and died to get to where we are. It, it, it basically says, you know, we we only care about liberty here within our own uh, arbitrary borders, and that we're going to tolerate people being butchered for 
eternity under these systems as opposed to doing a short-term cost right now to liberate them for the rest of the time. So that, that's all I got to say. But if you got any closing remarks, feel free, and then we can wrap it up. So. No, if I if I say anything else, it'll it'll just keep driving us back and forth. Yeah, so it's been, been two hours. Uh, if anyone liked what I had to say, if I've dissuaded any neocons in particular, that would be tremendous. Fucking DM me, let me know. It's at Liberty Lockpot on Twitter and uh, Liberty Lockdown on YouTube, Liberty Lockdown Podcast everywhere, Spotify, iTunes. And uh, again, I do appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk to you. I think that I think that it'll be revelatory for some people and for those that uh, that just enjoyed the shit show. Then you know, <laughs> you're, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are just here for blood sports and stuff. So you know, we didn't really have blood sports tonight or anything, but I thought it was an interesting conversation. So I, I agree. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, you get to see a bit more of like where where a neoconservative perspective comes from. So I, I did for sure. Yeah. For All sure. right, brother. Thank you. Have a good night.